0: Amen. Join me in John chapter 13. That'll be our passage of scripture today. You can find that in the Bible, in your pew there, on page 754. Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Hope you feel right at home, because you are. Um, There's an opportunity I want to make sure that you're aware of. I hope that each week you take advantage of the bulletin that we provide on Sunday mornings and also the weekly email. Uh, that we send out. So you stay on the same page, have an idea of what's happening here at our church. But there's one thing I want to make sure that you're you're aware of. We're offering 21 Days of Hope over the next 21 days leading up to Easter. We're going to provide you with a daily email devotion. Uh, It'll be Monday through Saturday. It'll be off on Sunday, so we hope that you are here with us. And then there'll be a few text messages uh, sent through. The way this works, if you're already signed up to receive the text messages and emails that we send, you're going to receive those. If you're only signed up for one, uh, fill out the insert that's in your in your bulletin uh, with your name and the other form of contact that we don't have. And we'll add that. If you're not signed up for either, fill out this and uh, the insert, give it to us after service. We'll make sure you receive those over the next 21 days as our hearts prepare Uh, for Easter. Just looking forward to celebrating that with you. Are you familiar with the theme to Chariots of Fire? Can you you recall? This is an older movie, so we're going to play it for you so that that you hear it and you know exactly what I'm talking about, okay? Hopefully when that drops, you begin to recognize it, right? And probably for most of you, you're picturing something happening in slow motion. That movie came out in 1981, and it was about um, the, the famous Olympian, Eric Liddell, who had, um, he had run in the Olympics, but he was a devout Christian, and his race was on a Sunday, and he didn't feel like he could run on Sunday. So he changed his event and then won a different event when that movie came out there's this iconic moment in the movie where that theme that score is playing and he is running on the beach and they go into slow motion and when I was in college we had this this whole genre of skits that we would do Um, we would do skits whenever they were visiting like youth groups or 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 visiting students, checking out the school, and we would do a skit where something totally normal was happening. But then that theme would start playing, and everybody would start moving in slow motion because of that iconic scene with that music and everything moving in slow motion. When I read John 13 to 17, I almost hear the chariots of fire theme in my head. Because if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they give us the events of the final week of Jesus' life all in the same pace. And and, and most of them give us an incredible amount of detail about what happens in Jesus' life. The majority of what we find about Jesus' life is really about that last section, that last period of his life. But especially the last week. But John... While those others follow the same pace and give us kind of the historical details, John turns on super slow motion. And he gives us this glimpse into the background of all of these conversations that Jesus is having. These conversations that he's having with his disciples, these moments that are taking place. And we kind of see the things that are happening behind the scenes. And I'm so thankful for Matthew, Mark, and Luke giving us, here's the narrative and the historical events that happened in Jesus' life. But I love having this different perspective from John of here's the conversations Jesus is having with the disciples. And John 13 tells us the story of Jesus' Last Supper. But Chapter 13 and verse 1 kind of gives us what is a preamble to these next four chapters. It tells us what is the driving force behind everything that is going to happen. Read John 13 and verse 1 with me. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come, that He should depart from this world to the father having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end right now we're in a series where we're looking at how should you live if you found out you only had 30 days to live and we're answering that question by looking at the life of Jesus who knew his time was running out Here in this verse, it tells us that he knew his hour had come to depart from this world. And this is significant because we have all of these occasions in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell us that there were times that people wanted to kill Jesus, that authorities or crowds, mobs wanted to kill Jesus, and either through using wisdom and avoiding it, or through supernatural means of just slipping through the crowd, he had avoided being killed. But now that he knows his hour has come and the time is right, he will walk at the end of this evening that John chapter 13 happens in, he will walk directly to those who wish to arrest him. He will walk directly to his torture and his execution. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what is coming. Uh, A couple of months ago, maybe a month ago in our community group while we were working through our Alpha course, one of the discussion questions was something along the lines of um, what what would you do if you could know the future or or would you want to know the future? And I was kind of surprised at the responses of some of the people in our community group because there were a few that said, I wouldn't want to know what's going to happen. Now, for me, anytime that's come up, I've always thought, man, I would love to know the future. Because I, I know what stocks I would buy and what games I would bet on, right? Like my thinking's probably just too much shaped by Back to the Future and science fiction books. But several people in the group said, I don't, I wouldn't want to know. And studying for this sermon, one of the, the, the writers pointed out that he also wouldn't want to know the future because Scripture tells us that sufficient to the day is the trouble thereof. In other words, every day has its own troubles and worries. Dealing with the present is hard enough, right? Figuring out how to get through this day, and that's without knowing all of the days that are to the come. And he pointed out that Jesus knew. Jesus knew all the days that were to come. And Jesus knew the suffering that he would experience. Jesus knew his entire life, how he was going to die. Jesus knew the pain that he was going to endure. And and think that the stress that that must have caused to know this painful, excruciating death that awaits him the writer points out it's no wonder that when he kneels in the garden to pray on this evening that he sweats drops of blood as the capillaries near his skin burst because he is under such great stress thinking about the imminence of this thing that he has known is coming all along Jesus has known and yet knowing that he comes to this moment, and what does he do? He has a meal with his friends, his disciples. And instead of it being this moment where he is comforted, he is pampered, this moment where they adore him and show him affection, it is reversed. It's a moment where he shows them how much he loves them in verse 1 of chapter 13, sets up this theme. And the most common word for the next several chapters, the next four chapters, is the word love. Because as Jesus is headed toward this moment that he knows is coming, he is driven by love. And being driven by love, he serves the disciples He comforts them. He gives them promises. He loved them deeply. So far in this series, we've looked at how Jesus lived when he knew the end was near. We've seen that he lived in the moment. We've seen that he looked beyond to the needs of others. And we see today that he loved deeply. How did Jesus live when he knew he only had days to live? He loved deeply. When Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John says, having loved his own. And this verse points out that this wasn't something that was new. It isn't that Jesus got to the end of his life and said, you know what, for these last 30 days, I'm going to love people. For this last week, I'm going to love people. He had been loving them. This was something that was consistent in his life. Spurgeon points out that how a man feels when he comes to a real crisis in his life is cultivated. It's, it's the, the the demonstration of what he's felt most strongly throughout his life. He says you might feel a whole range of things throughout life, but when you have a crisis, the thing that you've felt most powerfully is what will come to the surface. And he quotes a proverb that says, the ruling passion, the ruling passion of your life is strong in death. So when when someone comes to the end of their life, the thing that they've been about all of their life comes to the surface. And what comes to the surface in Jesus' life here at the end is a love that he's had from the very beginning because he's loved the disciples. Not just ever since he got to know them, but before he even got to this world. He had been loving. Scripture makes it clear that in a general way, God loved the world, and that's the whole reason that Jesus is here. Jesus has loved these disciples before he even arrived here on earth, and then he comes into their lives, and each one in their own way invites them to follow him. They each have their own origin story. They each have their own interaction where Jesus invites them to become one of his followers. Just like each of us have our own origin story, where God loved us before we ever knew him. And he came into our lives and in our own messed up ways, he reached out to us and he called us and invited us to follow him. He knocked down walls, he lit up darkness, He exposed lies. He showed us his love for us. Everyone here who is a disciple of Jesus Christ can tell their story of how they came to know the love of God in their own lives. He got your attention. He called you to follow him. And he made you his own. This passage says, having loved his own. And what a wonderful thing it is to be called his own. Now, I know that in our culture today, it's not really in vogue to call someone your own or say he's mine because we don't own people and whatever other woke nonsense people have thinking about this idea. But Jesus' disciples were his own. Not only because he called them to follow him, not only because they had agreed to become his disciples and follow him every step of his journey, not only because they had decided to trust him and follow his teachings and believe in him, they were his own because he was going to buy them with a price. What's about to happen on this evening is Jesus is about to be arrested, tortured, executed, Killed on a cross for crimes he did not commit. To pay the price for sins he did not commit. Paul would later write to the Corinthians to tell them that they should no longer live the way that they used to live. That they should live differently. And he would tell them in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 to 20, Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Paul is saying every believer is purchased with a price and that price is Jesus' blood spilled for us on the cross. The disciples were Jesus' own because he'd called them, he'd invited them, they had followed, they had trusted, but they would also be his disciples because he was going to pay for their freedom from sin through his sacrifice. And friend, if you are a disciple of Jesus, the same is said of you. Jesus bought your freedom. And you're not your own. You belong To him. I got in trouble with Nicole this week. I'm sure you're surprised. Um, But the reason this week that I got in trouble with Nicole is apparently I was very irresponsible in a dream that she had. (laughs) This is a common recurring thing. And it's always the same. The dream is set in high school. And whenever she says, I had a dream the other night and we were in high school, I go, oh, boy, what did I do this time? Because the, the common recurring theme is that we're in high school and I'm being my usual high school self, right? Being irresponsible in some way, not being as thoughtful as I ought to be, that kind of thing. I'm much better now. She, I never get in trouble in her dreams that are present day. But the truth is, if we were to go back to that time in our lives, I had been liking Nicole some time before we started dating. But through some high school drama, I had, I had come to hear that she liked my best friend. And so for that reason, I, I stepped back. But then I found out, oh, she she does like me. And after that, it was over. <laughs> right? We were together from that day forward. We've been together for 23 years now, right? After that, I was hers and she was mine. When I finally figured out that she returned my affection, it was over. I was already loving her. From that point, we were together. Friend, listen. I don't know what you've heard through the rumor mill or through culture or through your family of origin. I don't know what you've been told. I don't know what you think about God. But the truth is that he loves you. He loves you. He wants to make you his own. Like he did with these disciples. They were his own and he loved them. And he wants to make you his own, not so much that he calls you and he invites you. He wants to make you his own so much that he suffered and bled and died for you. This verse says, that having loved his own who were in the world. Now John's making an emphasis here. Um, earlier in the verse, he says, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world. So he, he's talking about the fact Jesus is going to leave the world, but Jesus loves his own who were in the world. So there's there's this coming separation that's happening. Jesus is leaving, but they'll still be here in the world. He loves these people that he's going to leave behind. And let's not miss the fact that that's incredible. Because Jesus is leaving this world to go to heaven where he belongs. Where his nature and his holiness and his glory is respected for what it is but he loves people here on earth. It's incredible that Jesus came from heaven to earth to be with people like us. That he crossed the cosmos to be here and to be born in very humble way and to live in a place that when one of the disciples first heard of him said, can any good thing come from there? He came from a a despised, a disrespected place. He left the Holy of Heaven to come here, to be among us and our shortcomings and our neediness and corruption. And you know, you live here on earth. Sometimes it leaves a lot to be desired. Sometimes the people here aren't great to be around. I'm sure that just this week, there have been a multitude of news stories that if you thought of them long enough, would make you furious. Just this morning, I saw the news story of some man who beat a woman while she was holding her baby. And I, I read things like that, and I'm like, I'm angry. And that's the people that Jesus came here for. People like us. People as irresponsible and messed up as us. And there's this separation that's coming and Jesus is gonna go back, but he is still holding to and loving the people who are here. He's not saying, man, I cannot wait to get out of here. I can't wait to leave. You ever been on a trip to a place, you're like, I cannot wait to get home. You have been stuck in an airport? You have been stuck waiting for a bus and you're going, I cannot wait to get out of here. The food is horrible, the people are rude. Jesus is not saying, oh, the end is here. I am out of here, man. My departure is at hand. I cannot wait. No, he is loving these people that he's with until the very moment. And if you read the Gospels, we know that these guys, they were constantly messing things up. And so he sits down and he shares a meal with them. And he reveals during this meal that he knows that one of the people sitting at the table, eating out of the same dish as him, dipping the bread with him. Imagine you're at the Mexican restaurant and the person across from you dipping their chip in the salsa. You know that they've betrayed you or they're about to betray you. Jesus knows that Judas is about to betray him. Peter will talk a big game at this meal about how he would lay down his life for Jesus. And Jesus says, Peter, I know that you will deny me three times tonight. Jesus knows these people. It's not that he has been fooled into liking them. He knows them and he loves them and he shares a meal with them. And then he washes their feet. That's what John 13 is about. Now, in our culture, in our day, the idea of washing someone's feet seems so foreign to us. But for people in Jesus' day, it was customary, if you were going somewhere with someone who had a nicer home, that you've been walking all day on dusty roads in your sandals, roads that you share with animals, your feet are gross. Before you track all of that into the house, you would wash your feet. There would be a place where you could clean your feet so you didn't track all of that in. And if the home was really well-to-do, there would be a servant stationed at this place, this this station. And the the servant would wash your feet for you. That's how you knew you were in a really fancy place. Nobody had, had prepped a spot to wash feet for this meal. They're, they're eating in, in a home that is not their own. They're eating in the upper room, a place that has been prepared for them, but it's not theirs. They get there, and Jesus washes their feet. He does the job that a servant would do for them. What better picture do we have of Jesus stooping down to be here among us in this world than him stooping down to our very feet and washing the disciples' feet? He would show them love in these visible ways while he was with them. He would then give them promises of the place he was preparing for them. He was showing them love, much like someone who knew their time on earth is limited would show love to their family. If you found out you only had a month to live, you probably would set your affairs in order. You would have items that you wanted to give to specific people in your family. You would want to make sure that they got those things that carry that significance. You'd spend time with them. And you'd tell them, Words of reassurance. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's communicating his love to the disciples in tangible and practical ways. Are you familiar with uh, the five love languages? It's out of a book, great book. Um, The five love languages are, are words of affirmation, acts of service, gifts, quality time and physical touch and the concept of the book is that oftentimes we love a person but we're communicating our love to them in our love language the way that we receive love and they need to hear it in their love language so for example if if your love language is acts of service you will do acts of service for this person and it doesn't really have an impact on them because that's not their love language They're like, oh, thanks. But what they need is they need words of affirmation. And so when you know the love language of the person you love, you communicate love in their language so that they can feel it, sense it, appreciate it, understand it. You know what Jesus is doing here? He's speaking love to the disciples in their language. God has come to be among us to demonstrate his love toward us. God in heaven loves us, but he came among us so that we could see that love, so that we could experience that love. John would later write in one of his letters, he would say, I'm writing to you about that which we have seen and heard and handled. We've experienced it. God was communicating love to them in a language that they could receive. God communicated his love toward us in sending us the physical manifestation of his love, his son. And now, Jesus has returned to be with the father. But in this moment that he's with the disciples and he's showing them this love, he makes sure that this love will continue to be communicated to others. Look down at verses 12 and 13. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you say say well for so I am. He's speaking of the fact that he's just washed their feet. if you do them, I'll skip down to verse 34. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love For one another. Jesus wants this communication of his love to continue even after he has left. Now, this is Thursday night in Passion Week. Okay? Passion Week, we have Easter Sunday. We have Good Friday, the day that Jesus died on the cross. Often Thursday is referred to as Monday. Thursday, And the reason that it's referred to as Monday Thursday is it's taken from the Latin word for mandate. Because on Thursday, Jesus gives a new mandate or a new command to his followers. He commands us to love one another as he has loved us. To show one another love as he showed us love. Now, Jesus doesn't command you to do something that's impossible. Rather, he commands you to do something that he empowers you to do, that he enables you to do. And he gives us an example to follow. There's a reason that the church is called the hands and feet of Jesus. Because we are to communicate to the world this love that Jesus communicated to to us. We're to be that love language to the world. The new commandment he has given us is to love one another like he loved us. Bruce Tillman tells a story of a church in Pittsburgh. The church in Pittsburgh um, was, was a week was really snowy. Snowing so hard, so icy, that nobody was getting out. There was a family in this church that their son had leukemia. And they had their son at home, and they were caring for him, but he'd become ill. This fever was constantly increasing. They were talking with the doctors, and the doctor said, you need to get your son to the hospital. And so they reach out to the hospital, and there are no ambulances available because of the storm. And so they reach out to their church. They call their pastor. The pastor's car is broken down, it's not available. And so the pastor reaches out to the elders of the church. And one of the elders says, I'll go. And he gets in his car and the storm is so bad and the hilly icy roads of Pittsburgh are so bad that he is in three fender benders before he gets to their house. But he continues, he doesn't stop, he keeps going. And he finally gets to their home. The mother and the father and their child, they come out and the mother and the son in the front seat wrapped up in a blanket, get seated and the father gets a seat in the back of the car. And the church elder takes a moment to try to figure out what's the safest way to get from here to the hospital. And he looks over at the little boy whose face is red and his eyes are wide and he's clearly battling a high fever. And just trying to comfort the boy, he reaches out and tussles his hair and says, don't worry, buddy, we're gonna get you to the hospital. And the boy looks over at him and says, mister, are you Jesus? And the elder laughed and said, no, but we're gonna get you to the hospital. And Tillman said, the elder could have honestly said yes in that moment. Because in that moment, he was the hands and feet of Jesus. And what God has called us to be, church, are his hands and his feet. The hands and feet that stooped to wash the disciples' feet. The hands and feet that communicated the love to God to a broken and messed up group of disciples. We are called to live and love like Jesus. And what Jesus shows us in his last days is that he loved deeply. This is a big calling, it's hard. There's a lot of need in the world. But Jesus does not call us to love others. He calls us to love others as he has loved us. Do you remember that experience of falling in love? And suddenly there was this new capacity of your heart to care for someone that you had not experienced before? Do you remember the experience of holding your newborn child and suddenly there was this new gear that your heart had to love in a way that previously you could not have? When we experience the love that God has for us, when we recognize the sacrifice that he has made for us, when we see what it is that God has done in spite of us and in spite of our sin out of love for us, when we experience that love, we are given a new gear, a new capacity, a new ability to love others. He calls us to love others as he has loved us. If you find yourself struggling to love others, the answer is not to try harder. The answer is not to find more lovable people. The answer is to experience the love of Jesus. John 13 one says, When Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. That final phrase of 13.1 is packed with meaning. The word end here means end, but it also has the idea of reaching the end of a trip, reaching the end of a project. It's the same root word that Jesus would use when he was on the cross and he cried out, telestai, or it is finished. And Jesus wasn't saying, I'm dead. Jesus wasn't saying, my life is over. Jesus was saying, mission accomplished. I have accomplished what I came here to accomplish. I have offered myself as the sacrifice. It's the end, but it means to complete or to finish. For that reason, the Revised Standard Version of the Bible translates this, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the uttermost. He loved them perfectly. He loved them completely. Friend, the love that Jesus had for them and us, he loved them to the end, He loved them in the final moments. He loved them in those last days with them before his sacrifice, but he loved them completely, perfectly, utterly. There was nothing that his love lacked. It was full and it was total. The love of Jesus lacks nothing. This passage is the preamble of what's gonna happen in chapters 13 to 17. But it's also the foreshadowing of Jesus's end, his death. Peter in this passage states, Jesus, I would lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, you can die for my sake. No, Peter, you will deny me. Peter could not die for Jesus's sake, but Jesus would die for Peter's sake and all our sakes. And he would say in just a couple chapters in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. There is nothing that the love of Jesus lacks. It is the ultimate and full and total expression of love. It's complete and it's perfect. And here's what that means for you and me. You and I cannot add anything to the love of God. And we cannot add anything to the sacrifice of God. It is complete and full on its own. There's no list of rules. There's no gift to be given. There's no act of righteousness that you can do to add to this love. It is total and full and complete. All you can do is receive it. All you can do is welcome it. And friend, if you're here today and you are His own, that full and complete sacrifice was made for you. Would you bow your heads with me? They're gonna come and lead us in a closing song And one of the lines they'll sing is come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He paid that price perfect, full, and complete and demonstrated that love to you. And friend, the invitation to you today is to experience it, to receive it. God loves you and he has demonstrated that love. Father, I ask that you would work in our hearts in this moment, Lord, that every person here could be your own. One of yours that you have loved to the full, loved to the end. And Lord, may we having experienced that love Love those around us. We pray these things in your name.